you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 12, we'll be looking there to God's Word this morning. Now, last week we looked at several very important things as we've been going through John's Gospel over the last couple of years, and we saw in John chapter 12 the necessity of the Son of Man being lifted up, but before that we saw that our Lord's human soul was greatly troubled as he contemplated his coming death, right? We talked about in John chapter 12, we're in the last week of our Lord's earthly ministry, the, the coming days before he's going to be crucified upon a Roman cross. And we saw in our passage last time that his soul was greatly troubled by these events. He, he knew what was coming. He was contemplating his coming death, and he was troubled in his very soul. But we also saw how that's a great comfort to us because he was troubled perfectly. <laughs> he was troubled without sin. And we talked about the necessity of our Lord's human nature, both body and soul, and why that is so essential that he came for us and for our salvation. But there was a couple verses that we were only able to kind of glance over at a high level, verses 31 through 32. We saw there the the importance of the things there, we spoke about them, but we weren't able to really dig into the depth and the riches of those particular verses. And there's actually a lot of questions surrounding those verses. There's a lot of questions about what does this judgment of the world mean? What is this casting out of Satan? What is this drawing of all people to Christ? What does these things mean? And I think that a lot of those questions actually kind of center around a lot of confusion and questions that we have in our own day about things like the end of the world, things about the last day judgment. What is Satan's role in this world? What precisely is his function now after Christ's coming? Because the truth is, we live in a very dark world, right? We live in a very dark world in a dark time. At least it feels that way to us. Maybe in the grand scheme of history, we actually got it pretty good, okay? But it feels pretty dark and overwhelming to us sometimes, if we're honest, right? There's moral decay. There's civil unrest. There's religious indifference. And I think for us, these are often very discouraging. We see the world around us. feels like things are falling apart, and we can become discouraged. And I think on top of all that, there's also a lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion about the end of the world, end times kind of theology, what's going to happen. Confusion about what the Bible has to say about the end of the world, about Satan, about evil, its prominence, how things are going to end, the last days, we could call it eschatology is the fancy word, okay? And I think that in the church in particular, this has led to a lot of discouragement and fear. Discouragement and fear. Maybe fear creeps in that maybe God is not totally in control of the world around us. Maybe there's fear that things are not going according to plan. Maybe fear that Satan, in fact, has the upper hand, that he is winning. Fear that Christ and his church and its mission will somehow be defeated by this evil world. Or maybe even more personally, we have fear. Fear that at the last day judgment, we will not be able to make it through. Fear that in our own soul, that we will not be able to make it through the great last day judgment. 
So there's fears of all kinds, fears within, fears without, fears about the trials that we're going to face in this life as Christians. But my hope is that we see today as we drill into these couple verses that we, as we look to God's word, we see that far from God's plan being thwarted by this evil world, it's actually quite the opposite. That in Christ, life, death, resurrection, ascension, his pouring out of his spirit, his exaltation and enthronement in heaven, that God's eternal plan of redemption is finally and fully carried out in him. And it cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. That for all those that are in Christ, they will be saved from the coming judgment, delivered from the power and the grip of Satan. And ultimately, this gospel that began in Jerusalem will go to all the nations, and Satan has no power to stop it. God, through Christ, will draw his people to himself, and this is a great comfort for us this morning. So I'm going to read our passage, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will look to God's word this morning. I'm going to begin at verse 20, just so we have some context for our passage. If you remember, there was some Greeks that were seeking Jesus, and we're going to begin there. Verse 20 says this, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name." And then a voice from heaven came and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him, but Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. And then these are the verses that we'll look at this morning. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy that you've poured out for us in Christ. We ask this morning that as we come together to hear what you have to say, we don't need a new revelation. We don't need a new word from you have your word this morning, and we pray that as we come to your word, we might find comfort and peace in the promises that you have given us. That in Christ, death has been defeated, Satan has been cast out, 
and that we have great hope this morning as your gospel is proclaimed, that you will draw your people to yourself. And this morning in this room, as we hear your word, we pray that we would be drawn to you, drawn to worship our great God and glory in the gospel of grace. We need your help this morning by your spirit. We ask and pray that you would strengthen us. And we ask and pray, Lord, that you would change us from one degree of glory to the next as we're conformed to the image of your Son. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're just really going to break up these verses into three different aspects, and you can follow along with me on your outline if you like. First, we're going to look at the judgment of this world, the judgment of this world. Secondly, we're going to look at the casting out of Satan, found in the second part of verse 31. And then finally, we'll look at the drawing of all nations. Sorry, not the drawing. My wife always makes fun of me. I add an L to drawing. It's drawing, okay? (laughs) The drawing of all nations. Okay, so first we're going to look at this statement that our Lord makes in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. On its surface, it's a very simple statement, right? It's only a couple words. They're pretty straightforward words. John is actually pretty famous for speaking very plainly and simply, right? At the beginning, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, very simple language, but in the same way, yet profound language. And actually, in our case this morning, a little perplexing, if we're honest. That what appears on the surface, kind of very straightforward and very simple language, is actually very complex. And as we look closer, we'll see that revealed. Now is the judgment of this world. What does this mean? <laughs> That's what I've been asking myself this week. Okay, what does this mean? What is referred to in these words of our Lord? We're going to look first at the first word, now. What does this word now mean here? Because there's a lot of different ways that we could come at this word now. You might think, okay, it's very simple. The word is now. And if you're a parent, when you say now, it means now. Clean your room now means not later, (laughs) okay? It means now. But there's a little bit more complexity going into these words in verse 31. It could mean at the very moment the words were spoken, okay? Jesus could be referring to the exact moment. At that moment is the judgment of this world. That could be possible. It could also mean a time that is soon to come and then pass, Like you could say, now is the NBA season. It's a time that's going to come, and then it's going to pass. Now is the Christmas season. It's going to come, and it's going to pass. It could refer to something like that. Or it could refer to a period of time that is soon to come and last. That's not going to pass away, but a time that is soon to come and that is going to last. And I would argue that this word now here is referring to an exact moment, or sorry, let me, re- let me restart. That this word now here being spoken of is not referring to the exact moment these words were spoken, no, nor is it referring to a strictly future event. But it is a time that has come and is now coming. A time that has come in the death and resurrection of Christ and will be consummated at the end of all things. An already present reality, 
So when the Lord says now, he does mean now, but he also means a not yet consummated reality. This is what we call the already and the not yet. But this still might be a little cloudy to us. What does our Lord mean when he says now is the judgment of the world? One thing to look at this morning. First thing is this. We could say that Christ's coming death will be a judgment of this world, right? Christ's coming death will be a judgment of this world. As one commentator said, Matthew Henry, now is the trial of this world. Now is the trial of this world. That all people will be tried, judged, and sentenced based on their response to Christ's coming act of death, right? The world will be judged based on their response to this act. That the lifting up of the Son of Man in death and the message of the cross will be a moment of truth for the world. I think it was John Calvin that said, the crucifixion is the hinge on which all of history turns, right? It's this moment in time that will either cause people to stumble and trip over, or it will be to them the power of God. To some, it will be wisdom, right? The wisdom of the cross. But to some, it will be foolishness and the aroma of death. That in this act and the people's response to this act, the world is now judged and will be ultimately and finally judged at the end of all things. I think this is one thing that our Lord is referring to. But the second thing that I think is going on here, now is the judgment of this world. If you look at the language just kind of on its surface, it sounds very much like end times, end of the world kind of judgment, right? Now is the judgment of this world. It almost seems like Jesus is talking about the final judgment, but he says it's now, okay? What, is, what does our Lord mean by these words? I think we can say this, that in Christ's wrath-bearing death that he is about to undertake, the final last day judgment breaks into history. The final last day judgment breaks into this age. That this phrase, the judgment of the world, to some can seem like it's talking about the end of all things, the judgment of the world, the final end times judgment. That day when God's wrath will be poured out on all sin. The coming future day when God will judge sin and all who are in their sin, right? This is the last day judgment. This is referred to throughout the scriptures. But Jesus says that it's now. He says now is the judgment of this world. How can these things be? I think we can say, as we look at what all of scripture has to say, that on the cross of Christ, the final end times judgment crashes into this world. The last day, wrath and curse of God on sin breaks into this age in the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. This is what one theologian would call an eschatological intrusion, okay? If you don't know what that means, that's okay, but it's fun to say. An eschatological intrusion. It's the end times reality, the judgment of the world breaking into the present, okay? That the bitter cup of wrath that our Lord drinks, right, on the cross, that bitter cup of wrath that He would drink 
is nothing less than the end times wrath, curse, and hell that our sin deserves. When Jesus is up on the cross, he's not just suffering as an example to you and me, teaching us how to suffer well. He's actually taking the end times judgment that our sin deserves. This is what our Lord is doing. The wages of our sin is death, but the glory of the gospel is that Christ has taken our punishment fully and finally, drinking the cup of God's wrath to the dregs for us. Not death by example, but death by substitution. There's that great hymn, in our place condemned he stood, right? He stood in our place. This is the glory of substitution. That the judgment, the end times judgment our sin deserved was fully and finally poured out on Christ on the cross. That's why Jesus can say, now is the judgment of this world. Our sin was judged in him. But we see next that not only is our sin judged, but so is Satan. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the latter part of verse 31, the casting out of Satan. The casting out of Satan. That in verse 31, our Lord declares that now will the ruler of this world be cast out. As we spoke about last week, this language, ruler of this world, God of this age, prince of the power of the air, what, is Martin, what did Martin Luther call him? Prince of darkness, grim, right? All these names refer to Satan or the devil. They're all references throughout Scripture to Satan, our great enemy. And we talked last week that because of Adam's failure and because of his fall into sin, that Satan is given temporary provisional rulership over this world, over the kingdoms of this world. If you're familiar with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, right? After his baptism, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And Satan tempts him in many ways, tempting him to make bread out of stone, tempting him to throw himself off the temple. But the final temptation is that if he would bow down and worship Satan, he would give him the kingdoms of this world. That's essentially what we're talking about here, this idea of the kingdoms of this world. That as we see in Scripture, this present world that we're in, Satan not only holds our sin over us, right, seeking to bring it before us, accuse God's people of their sins regularly. And not only does he influence the fallen world that we live in, but we see that he also has blinded the nations, the kingdoms of this world, that Satan has blinded the nations, deceiving them, veiling them to God and the things of God. And in our passage, and up until this point in history, except for a couple Gentiles that had come into the people of Israel, the revelation of God was only given to the people of Israel, right? Up until this point in the Gospel of John, except for a couple Gentiles, the revelation of God was only given to the people of Israel, the physical offspring of Abraham. As we read this morning, right? The nations, the Gentiles, the people of the flesh were separated from the revelation of God alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. That describes the people of the nations up until this point in human history. 
But as we also read, in Christ, God has come to reconcile the world to Himself by breaking the power of sin, by casting out and binding Satan, the destroyer and the deceiver of the nations. Now there's a really interesting story in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12. There's this account of Jesus casting out a demon from a demon-oppressed man. Okay? And the Pharisees come and they see him perform this great sign and they say, you cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Okay? They're accusing Jesus essentially of being demon-possessed. And he refutes their logic and he says, Satan cannot cast out Satan. Right? A kingdom divided will not stand. But he says, it is actually by the Spirit of God that I do this. And if that's true then the promised kingdom of God has come upon you. He uses that language of has come upon you, this promised kingdom of God. And he says something very interesting in verse 29. I'll read verse 28 for context. He says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house unless he plunders his good and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house Jesus is using this imagery of a strong man that has all these goods and he says you can't take his goods unless you wrap up the strong man bind him then you can take everything that he has okay our Jesus is using this imagery to describe something and what is going on in this kind of parabolic language well, in this illustration, Satan is the strong man. Satan is the strong man pictured in Matthew chapter 12. He is the one who has his hold on the nations, blinding them to God and to his Christ and deceiving the world, right? This is the imagery that Jesus is using to talk about this strong man. But what we're seeing in John chapter 12 is that in Christ, in his life, his death, and in his resurrection, he has bound the strong man. He has bound the strong man and plundered his house by bringing in the harvest of the nations through the proclamation of the gospel to all the world. That in the lifting up of the perfect Son of God, Satan himself was defeated. His power over God's people destroyed. His hold on the nations bound. The ruler of this world now cast out. So that the gospel might go to all the nations. And this is basically what we see in the book of Acts. We see the gospel begin in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and what's it say? To the ends of the earth. Now, I want to make one small point here. Some of you might know where I'm going, and I come here treading lightly, okay? But there's one other place in all of Scripture where we see this language of binding of Satan and the casting out of Satan. There's one other place, and it might be the most controversial place that we could go this morning, but it's Revelation chapter 20. 
Revelation chapter 20, we see this exact same language of the binding out and the casting of Satan during this thousand-year millennium, okay? So there's a lot of debate in our age about this passage, about what is this millennium, what is this thousand-year reign, what is going on here. There's a lot of questions, there's a lot of opinions, and in fact, this might be one of the most debated passages in our day, I think. So I come here treading very lightly and really saying what I think the scriptures say. If you have a different view than me, that's okay. But there's a lot of questions, right? If you go to Revelation chapter 20, you could turn there with me if you wanted to. We see that there's this thousand years described, this infamous thousand years referred to as the millennium. And there's a lot of questions. Is this a literal thousand years, okay? Is it literally 1,000 years date to date kind of thing? Is this thousand years describing a physical reign of Christ on the earth before his last second coming? Is this kind of a golden age where Christianity takes over the whole world and takes over the globe? What is being described in this thousand years? And I think that sometimes there's kind of an unhealthy obsession about this passage and unbiblical speculation And that leads to a lot of confusion and fear in our day, as I previously mentioned. But I think that when we come to this passage and we look at it in the context of the rest of the scripture, it actually becomes pretty clear what is going on here. And I'll read verses 1 through 3 recorded for us in John's Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Now listen to this. And bound him for a thousand years. Same language as Matthew chapter 12. And through him, could also be translated, cast out into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So we see the same language of casting out and of binding in Revelation chapter 7. The same language from Matthew chapter 12 and John chapter 12. Okay? And if you're into pneumonology, like they're both 12s, okay? So it must be right. Okay? Just kidding. Okay? But in light of our passage, what we've seen in John, in John chapter 12, and in light of the book of Acts and all that the New Testament records for us, I would argue that this binding and this casting out of Satan is not a literal thousand years sometime in the future, but is actually a current present reality. A current present reality. A symbolic representation of the time between Christ's two advents, his first coming and his second coming. We see symbolic language used like this throughout the scriptures, right? The Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills, okay? That's symbolic language. I think the same thing is going on here in Revelation chapter 20. That because of Christ's work on the cross, he has bound the strong man from Matthew chapter 12, Satan himself. And that's why he can say in John chapter 12, now the ruler of this world is cast out, is thrown out. Why? We get the answer in Revelation verse 3, so that he might not deceive the nations, right? So that he might not deceive the nations, Satan can no longer deceive the nations of the world. He is bound. 
Now, there's a lot of things that this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that Satan still doesn't have power in this world. This doesn't mean that he still can't influence people. He can cause God's people, tempt them to despair, to sin, to fear. Scripture also says that he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is still at work, right? He is still at work in this present age, but we see that he is bound and kept from deceiving the nations. He cannot keep the gospel, gospel from spreading to the ends of the earth. He cannot keep the nations from flowing to Christ and his church. He cannot keep all types of people from being drawn to the Son of Man that is lifted up. And in this room, we're proof of that, okay? I don't think any of us are Jewish. <laughs> we're not from Israel. We are Gentiles. And therefore, we are proof that the gospel has gone to the nations. And so this should give us great confidence that God in Christ is ruling and reigning right now, even as we speak. That Satan's hold on the nations is destroyed. He's received his sentence now, and he is awaiting his final execution on the last day. So this leads us to our third and final point this morning, the drawing of the nation. So we've seen the judgment of this world, we've seen the casting out of Satan, and finally we'll look at the drawing of all, drawing of all nations. We see in verse 32, our Lord concludes his statement with these words. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. This is the drawing of the nations. That as we spoke about last week, just as in the same way as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, this emblem of judgment, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. That Christ, upon his crucifixion, was lifted up from the earth just as the bronze serpent was, an emblem of judgment and a picture of the people's sin, this was the nature of our Lord's lifting up. That in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever would look on Him would be saved. But there's a couple questions in our passage. What is this drawing that's described here? What does it mean that all people will be drawn to the Son of Man lifted up? And secondly, what does all mean? <laughs> what does all mean? What does it mean that all people will be drawn to the Son of Man that is lifted up? Jesus says that an effect of his lifting up will be that all people will be drawn to him. What does this mean? Does it mean that at his crucifixion, every single person will literally be drawn to the physical cross, okay? I don't think anybody holds that view. I don't think that is, that doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't mean every person literally would be drawn to the physical cross of Christ. Does it mean that all people, every single person, will be drawn to Christ in salvation by the Father, right? Is that the kind of drawing that Jesus is talking about, being drawn effectually by the Father? Will all people be saved? I guess we could say it like that. But I think that if we look at the immediate context of the verse, it actually becomes pretty clear what this all is in reference to. That it is not a reference to every single person, but a reference to all people of the nations. 
both Jew and Gentile. If you go back to verse 20, in the context, it is Greeks that are now seeking him. It is Gentile people that are now seeking our Lord, right? And so this all here does not mean every single person, but all types of people, Jew and Gentile. And I think that this connection is strengthened when we see that Jesus is actually drawing on language taken from the Old Testament. We actually read it this morning in our call to worship. You could turn there if you wanted to in Isaiah chapter 2, or you could just look on your handout. Isaiah says something very interesting. He says that in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted up as the highest mountain. And then he says, and all nations will flow to it or be drawn to it, okay? So notice what we've highlighted there. Lifting up, all nations being drawn, (laughs) okay? Does that not sound a lot like what Jesus is saying in John chapter 12? What Isaiah is describing here is that during the days of the Messiah, between his first and second coming, this great mountain temple pictured here will be lifted up, all the nations will flow to it, and will be drawn to its light. And I think what Jesus is saying in John chapter 12, verse 32, is saying, that's me. That's me. I am the one that was pictured in Isaiah chapter 2. I am the fulfillment of what Isaiah looked forward to. Even though it was very shadowy, I am the substance, I am the reality, I am the fulfillment of what Isaiah promised. That we can say that when it comes to Old Testament prophets, that the prophets would sometimes use language from the first level physical promise to point forward to the second level spiritual fulfillment in Christ and His church. That what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 2 is not a literal, physical, seismic event in which the mountain of the Lord gets higher than, say, Mount Everest or something, okay? That's not what it's saying. It's not saying at the end of all things there's going to be a mountain that's going to magically just get bigger than all the other mountains. It's symbolic language that's being referred to. He's talking about the glory of Christ and the new covenant, the heavenly Mount Zion where the nations will flow to the house of the Lord, the Gentiles being drawn to the lifted up Son of Man. This house of the Lord, this is temple language. And Jesus even refers to himself in John chapter 2 as the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So we can see how all of these threads come together, these three different things that we've looked at this morning the judgment of the world, the casting out of Satan, and the drawing of all nations. That in this one decisive act of the crucifixion of the Son of God, God's eternal plan of redemption is carried out. That Christ here is the great mountain temple that is lifted up in His death and resurrection for all to see. And that in this act, not only will the world be judged, but Satan's hold on the nations will be broken, that they might flow to him. The ruler of this world cast out that God's elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation may be effectually drawn 
to Christ in the preaching of the cross. That's what we see in John chapter 12. It is only in the suffering and death of the servant of the Lord, pictured in Isaiah 53, that salvation comes to the many, that the many are made righteous. It's only after Christ's death and resurrection that the gospel, the good news, can spread to the nations. And it is only in Jesus, the true offspring of Abraham, that the nations shall be blessed, and the Gentiles justified by faith and receive the Spirit of the living God. And so as we walk away from our passage this morning, there's two things that we need to contemplate and think about as we seek to apply this passage this morning. The first one is this. We do not have to fear the end of the world if we are united to Christ. We don't have to fear the end of the world if we are united to Christ. That, as we've kind of said, there's a lot of fear in our day, a fear of death, a fear of the end, right? There's rumors of wars, rumors of all sorts of things, anxiety about the future, fear of the unknown, what's going to happen? What's going to come of these things? And I think that if we're honest, even in our own hearts, sometimes we're troubled. We see what's going on in the world and we feel troubled. We feel troubled by the evil and the wickedness that is around us, weighed down by this world and the cares of this world. And sometimes we're even afraid. We're even afraid of what might come. But we see that our Lord comes to us just as he came to the disciples who were on the tumultuous seas. And he comes to them, and he comes to us, and he says these words, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He comes to them and he says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That we do not need to fear the future, the end of the world, the end of anything, if we are in Christ. Jesus, a couple chapters later in John's gospel, will say these words to his disciples in the upper room. He says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world, right? Now is the judgment of this world. We do not need to fear because our Lord has conquered and overcome this world. We will have tribulations in this world. John even calls himself a fellow partner in the tribulation, right? We will have trials and difficulties in this life, but we can take heart because Christ has overcome this world. And I think another thing that we can see in this passage is that justice will be done, right? Now is the judgment of this world. The evil in this world that seems to prevail, it seems to be unabating, seems to go on with no punishment, no repercussions, will fully and finally be judged in Christ. And so we can trust, we can take peace that not only that, but in Christ, you and I do not need to fear the end times judgment. That if we are in Christ, our sin, our iniquity has been paid for in the perfect Son of God who took our place and absorbed the wrath of God for our sin. Drinking the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, to the bottom, 
so that we might be spared, so that we might be saved. That's why we can say what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That it, to be in Christ is to have condemnation removed fully, finally. There's no fear that at the end there might be a secret sin that you forgot to repent for and it will come back and bite you. No, if you are in Christ, if your faith is in Him alone, you will be saved from the judgment. But the second thing we see here is the confidence that we can have in Christ and in the salvation of His people through the preaching of the gospel. And I think we see that in this way, that Christ will draw His people, elect from every nation to Himself through the public preaching of the gospel, through the lifting up of the Son of Man. That Christ will do this. He promised it. That's what He says in verse 32. I will draw all people, all nations to myself. I will do it, right? This is a promise of our Lord. He will do what he has said. And we see also that even Satan himself cannot stop this. (laughs) Satan himself cannot thwart God's plan. He cannot take God's people from him. What does Jesus say? All that the Father has given me will come to me. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hands. This is the security that God's people have. And we have this promise as we look through the rest of the New Testament that in the preaching of the gospel, in the public lifting up of the Son of Man as the only way of salvation, God is effectually drawing His people to Himself. I wasn't going to talk about this, but in Ephesians 2, Paul's saying that Christ came and preached peace to you. Even though Paul never went to Ephesians, he, Paul is able to say, sorry, did I say, even though Jesus never went to Ephesus, Paul is able to say that Christ preached peace to you, that through the preaching of the word, Christ is effectually calling and drawing his people to himself. And this is the confidence that we can have that God is going to accomplish his purposes. And so I think that that should give us a lot of rest. In our day, there's a lot of conversation. How can we have these new ideas? How can we draw people to Jesus? How can we get them to come, right? There's a lot of talk in our day. What's a unique thing we can do? How can we try to get as many people as possible? But the word is clear. The way that people are drawn to Christ is through the public lifting up the Son of Man in the proclamation of the gospel, that Satan cannot thwart God's plan, that God's redemption is found in Christ alone, God's people will be saved, effectually drawn by the power of the Spirit to believe the gospel and be saved, right? And this is the hope that we have, that nobody can stop Christ, nobody can thwart his plan, the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ and his church. That's the hope we have this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you've given us in Christ, that even though the world around us seems to crumble and it looks very dim, we can have confidence that you have won the victory. You won it in the death of Christ on the cross, and at the end of all things, it will be consummated. And the only hope we have this morning is if our faith is found in Christ alone. If we've been drawn by the Spirit of God, 
looked to the bronze serpent lifted up on a pole that all who look on it by the simple act of faith might be saved. Saved from the poisonous venom of sin, God's people made new, cleansed, purified, and saved from the coming judgment. That's our only hope this morning. So we ask and pray that you would help us to see these things with the eyes of faith, that we would be drawn to Christ, and that we would come to rest in Him alone this morning. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.